0: Hello and welcome to From the Platform, episode three, with me, Tom Peel, and Amy Reid. Hello. In the last two episodes, we've looked at how we talk about what we talk about, and in this episode, we're going to edge slightly closer to an actual topic, one that lets us think about what the Bible is and how we're supposed to use it. And that topic is cultural context. Cultural context being the framework within which the text is couched, historically speaking, Culturally speaking, we often look at textual context, which is where we consider a verse within its chapter or book or within the frame of other books of the Bible. Uh, But cultural context sometimes is a tool that adds another dimension to the text that isn't explicit within the text. And I guess what we want to talk about today is, is that useful? Should we be doing that? Because there are kind of two ideas about it. Anything to add before we crack on?
1: No, sounds great. Very concise. Well done.
0: Thanks very much. So traditionally, Christadelphians would adhere to the idea of scripture interpreting scripture. And so one thing I want us to think about is, is that exclusive? Should we only allow scripture to be interpreted by scripture? Or are there some things that require us to have a outside idea of the author's time and space that isn't explicit in the text? Saying that, Interpreting scripture with scripture is a brilliant start point, I think, for any Bible study, for anything you're doing, to look at cross-references, where the ideas start from, the threads that lead through the entire Bible can teach us so, so much. And Christadelphians, I think, have used that in a really good way to actually strip away culture that
1: yeah, isn't there. Yeah, unhelpful cultural context. Yeah, well, like maybe
0: that. it's a later cultural context. So, for example, with the devil, um, the, we know the Hebrew is adversary or opponent, and then you get Greek cultural ideas added onto that at a later date.
1: So I suppose that Christophians do get rid of cultural context in a way in terms of the things that led to teachings such as the Trinity and heaven-going and purgatory and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, in a way, it's good that that's the specific things that are in the Bible have been... Uh, separated from the external things. So that's
0: a kind of. Yeah, but an important differentiation to make is those things about the devil and the Trinity were additional things that were added later. Yeah.
1: They weren't concurrent.
0: I think I, what I'm referencing with cultural context is so the culture and context of Paul when he's writing mm-hmm. or of Peter or of the people writing the Bible. Yeah, it's great that we can strip away the external stuff that gets added on later and get back to that original idea. But the cultural context of that time often helps us think about what that original idea Mm. actually meant. And in many ways, the Bible is so voluminous and spans so many genres, styles and such a long period of history. It holds a lot of its culture within itself. It provides its own context for the origins of life, death, marriage, law, kingship and many other things. However... We do get instances in the Bible where it appears as though the information to interpret it is not included within any part of the Scriptures. So, well, a really simple example is the case of the Hebrew idea of the heart. There's a really good Bible Project video. I recommend people go and look up Bible Project Heart. It's part of their Shema series, which is really good. And that explains how culturally... The Hebrew language refers to the heart as the seat of emotion and thought and uh, desire, these Basically sorts of things. like
1: the romantic part of the brain, isn't
0: it? Yeah, but it also points out they didn't have a word for the brain, so they didn't understand the idea that, you know, there's parts of the hippocampus and amygdala and those scientific things that we know now that are the seat of lots of things like conscience and thought. The, but the Bible allows for that. It allows for that physiological, um, maybe it's not a misunderstanding, but interpretation of where thought and feeling come from. And we allow for that as well. We allow the Bible to to be scientifically, uh, in quotes, wrong about it, whereas we understand that scientifically the, the brain is the seat of the thought, the Bible says something different, and we account for that. We don't insist on a literal interpretation of that because otherwise it would go against a lot of uh, understanding that we already have. So here are a few more things um, that kind of can't really be interpreted with other scriptures. could be the idea of um, the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man goes down into Hades, and there's this great chasm between them. And Obviously, the idea of, of heaven going in hell is not something that Christadelphians believe. And we make make a strong argument from the Bible that that is not what the Bible is teaching. And so when Jesus kind of throws this in the mix, it kind of is something to, to really think hard about. Again, it's something that later cultural developments have used that verse to suggest that there is a, a hell, a fiery flaming place of torment that you go to when you die and Christadelphians have you know using scripture to interpret scripture have been able to remove that additional later culture but we're still left with this kind of idea that Jesus puts forward and it's not without an understanding of Jewish mythology uh, and thinking that you can really get a good idea about what Jesus is saying he's kind of parodying a jewish cultural myth stephen cox has a really good uh, pamphlet on this uh, that i recommend and that goes into it in great detail about the culture at the time and what jesus is referring to and how he takes that and then spins it at the end and says about resurrection to show them it's not about this cultural myth that they're talking about he's saying even if one rose from the dead and tried to tell the rich man's brothers that they should change their ways they wouldn't do it and obviously the, the the use of lazarus in that is a key indication of that
1: where is that in the bible
0: it's in luke chapter 16 so another one quick example would be the day star which is sometimes translated in older versions as lucifer which we find in isaiah 14 verse 12 again this is a passage that has been mixed in with greek culture to give the idea of the devil as a fallen angel and that's lucifer he's fallen from heaven but the i mean you can do this from textual context as well you can see that isaiah 14 is written about the king of babylon but also that is backed up when you look at other documents that refer to the king of babylon as a deity known as the day star and so
1: so you can basically see why they use that terminology if you use cultural context rather than using scripture to interpret scripture
0: yeah because otherwise you're left guessing um as to what that means and you might be trying to hunt around in the bible for other uses of that and kind of maybe fudge and shoehorn a a different argument. Um, So these are some very obscure references that as far as I'm aware have no other references to turn to. We could also look at Jannes and Jambras or the woman weeping for Tumuz, Amongst others, there's um, Cretan and Greek poets that are cited or the book of Enoch is uh, apparently cited by Jude. I think there might be some debate about that, but um, you wouldn't know that without having read the book of Enoch or knowing that the book of Enoch existed mm-hmm. uh, as an apocryphal text. Uh, and this is an important point as well. Uh, uh, Cause apart from this, we actually already have a whole heap of cultural knowledge, which we readily bring to the text. For example, we learn in primary school about Romans and sometimes we have the, the Roman centurion man dressed up, comes to the library and tells us all about aqueducts or, CYC. or at CYC. Great oh, did you have a- it? great, yes. there you go. And, so then, we're able to read Ephesians six and the armor of God, and not blink at what that means.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what else is interesting is we come at that passage in a educational sense or in a
1: yeah, because actually intellectual the, sense. When you talk about the armor and the breastplate and all that kind of stuff, it makes me feel very Sunday schooly and like you said, it's a very primary school thing where you maybe you know you make a collage of a Roman soldier. But I think the point. Uh, the person who spoke to you about this was making is that the people of the time, when they would hear a Roman soldier, it would fill them with fear and dread mm. because they would see them every day out on the streets and also the terrible kind of punishments and tortures and things. Yeah. So actually, even though we do have that cultural context, it maybe doesn't actually evoke the feelings that it would have at the time. Yeah, And I guess that's a question. Is it supposed to invoke the same feelings or is it okay that we think
0: about the armour of God in a slightly different way. And so that that brings out another thing. Sometimes we think about the past or people at at the time of the writing of the Bible as all having one mindset, Mm -hmm. all having one way of looking at the world, when clearly they didn't because you know clearly no two people in, in the world now have the same
1: probably more viewpoint. than we could ever appreciate today because we have so much shared media that we have and we're all kind of we're finding about what people are thinking we're seeing images of different people and we have you know advertising and and fashion and things that kind mm-hmm. of keep us all together along a similar path at least in the western world mm-hmm. whereas actually in those days if you were highly educated and literate you might actually get a letter from someone other than that it would be only your very very close community which suggests that there was a bigger variety of people and their world views and education so i think it's hard for us to actually imagine how different they would have all been a letter from one country to the other would be like to a different planet now
0: Hmm. yeah potentially yeah so and we're basing cultural context on things we found so we might have some evidence about a particular roman god that influences our understanding of how people thought about demonic possession. Um, but we don't know how widespread that understanding was or how universal um, that, that understanding was. It may have changed across different cities even. Mm. And, we, we yeah, For I so guess we know that with kind of Diana of the Ephesians. She's a goddess that it has a particular culture in Ephesus, but she's called Diana elsewhere. Um, did I say Diana already? I yeah, meant... Artemis? Yes, Artemis to Diana, I think from the switch between Romans and Greeks. And then, you know, that wouldn't have kind of carried across everywhere. So basically, it's a, it's kind of a big matrix. It's a lattice. Culture is, never, is always fluid, isn't it? Mm. So it's really hard to pin down what certain people thought at a certain particular time is basically indeed. what I'm trying to get at. And
1: I think you're referencing there a talk that we looked at, which talked about essentially a Christadelphian explanation for demon possession and being possessed by an evil spirit when mm. right? Jesus would cure somebody. And now we say, oh, that person had schizophrenia or they had epilepsy or they had this or that. And the idea was using quite specific cultural context of the time, wasn't it, to suggest that this was a non-literal term that people would use all the time? Say, oh, they're possessed by... It was an idiom. Devil. Yeah, yeah, that it was an idiom. is non-literal language. So they didn't actually think that, but that it was just a way of describing it. However, I think maybe the crux, maybe of what you're talking about with this topic, is maybe revealing in some way some of the hypocrisy of using contextual criticism within Christophian circles, because mm-hmm. we'll use it if it fits our uh, specific, maybe even quite traditional, long-held ideas and mm-hmm. um, doctrines, but then would be highly suspicious of it if it's then used in any way that would challenge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I I put this question out on a thread, like, should we use cultural context? And one of the responses I got back was, does this change anything important by knowing the background of this? So Mm -hmm. the idea of, yep, use scripture to interpret scripture, look into the background of it, use it if it doesn't change anything important was kind of the idea. It's like, I'm not sure if that's valid um, because...
1: Yeah. What's your measure of importance?
0: Yeah, yeah. So if it if it's something that maybe okay, there's some cultural context behind what Paul says about head coverings. We can then that means we can change what we think practically. Is that important?
1: Or does it turn into just maintaining the truth is what it is? Yeah. And rejecting anything that changes
0: it. Exactly. So okay, let's think about uh, maybe a more traditional. Idea or, or the, the other side of the coin with this. Oh, before we do, though, I, one last thing. We have to bear in mind that all of this has already been translated from Hebrew or Greek by a group of people who are trying their best to convert language and idioms already couched in culture into English. I mean, we're quite good, I think, at going back to the Greek and Hebrew, but even then, we're not quite sure how they would have really used those words in, in their context and, and in their society.
1: Um, And also an aside, which I thought was really something I listened to the other day, Um, uh, it was someone describing sleep patterns in medieval times. So um, it's thought that in medieval times, uh, you would go to bed fairly early when the sunset Mm. then you'd wake up for a few hours in the night and then you'd go back to sleep again and wake wake up again when the sun rose um because obviously you didn't have artificial lighting so there was nothing else to do but go to bed when the sun went down but you don't need that much sleep especially in the winter so you'd wake up for a long time and it was Mm. kind of you get up you would uh you know you'd socialize you would eat food um you would spend time with your family that kind of thing and um the person pointed out this idea that Uh, It is so radical. Even that's kind of 500, 600 years ago, medieval Mm. times. And it's so radically different to the way we live today. Like, you couldn't just step out of a time machine and go and blend in with everyone. You wouldn't even know when to go to bed. Like, it's so fundamental. And they said, you know medieval times it's not it's almost like we're a different race of mm. beings because we are so different to the way people mm. were then and if you think that's only a kind of a quarter of the way back even yeah. going just yeah, to yeah. jesus and the writings of the new testament mm. and um yeah i don't think we can take lightly how different life would have been yeah. because we yeah. can't possibly imagine it
0: yeah another uh, idea in that vein is the idea that before the time of newton scientific thinking was not a was not a concept so we you wouldn't just um look at t- some fire and and think abstractly about it the the chemical reactions that are going on you, you'd associate fire with meaning heavily with meaning whereas the scientific re- uh, kind of revolution the job of it is to separate out the affective emotional meanings from things and look at it purely objectively. That's a really recent development as yeah, well. It's
1: the modernist movement, isn't it? Kind of relying on empirical science, mm, which
0: mm.
1: just underpins every the entire way that we think these days. So
0: it's the idea of removing any mythology or any um, emotional meaning from things. And and something like fire or, you know, in the Bible we have descriptions of the sea and sea beasts and the things that lurk within it, which are very emotive, and that's their description of the sea. And they wouldn't have had another description of the sea that was more kind of rational. Mm. That was their understanding of the sea. It was very predicated on stories and ideas about... Creation, or gods and things that live there, or sea creatures and those sorts of things. So, yeah, a lot. There's basically a lot to think about when you when you delve into cultural context. um the tradition the more traditional view is the idea that yes god chose to reveal a truth in a particular context via a particular person for a reason to a particular audience but he's also chosen to preserve that truth for our learning now and therefore that despite the context of the time and um, whatever those words meant to the people at that time the very fact that god has kept it through the ages Unchanged for us means it must have some sort of universal truth that transcends any extra biblical culture, either of our own or of those at the time of writing. And when you think about the meticulous and astonishing preservation of scripture found in, like, the Masoretic texts, the idea that the New Testament um, texts are the most reliable texts we have, they they outdo pretty much everything by. it, by hundreds of years, in terms so what do you mean of by originality. Of years, what's so, the um, from when they were written to the earliest fragments that we have of them. I think the next best one is Homer's Odyssey, and there's like a good 300 years between when it was supposed to have been written and when we have mm-hmm. an actual copy of it.
1: Is it also between the time of the event and the earliest writings, that kind of thing?
0: Potentially. It's quite easy to find the sources for it uh, if you Google textual reliability of the New Testament. But the question being asked is what other reason accounts for this miraculous preservation it must be because in some way it talks directly to us and this combined with the successful application for understanding creating order from the world around us using the bible as a kind of a guide and uh, applying its wisdom to everyday situations for thousands of years kind of means well why would we want to start unpicking all that and look back again at what they are saying.
1: So the point is if it it is such a miracle that it still exists as it is today, hmm. that it can't be it must be something that God purposefully did so that we would have it in its form now, so that
0: We should it, take it literally. Yeah, so it
1: should be relevant to our lives we can't yeah. read it and say that's interesting we can see how that was spiritually spiritually beneficial to the people at the time but it's not for us mm, mm. the idea is it's is definitely for us yeah
0: so to distill both the kind of ideas one is the bible was written to a group of people and we're kind of reading someone else's mail. It, was, it wasn't written to us, but we can glean wisdom from it. Mm-hmm. The other idea is that it's, it's written to all people throughout all ages, mm. no matter what your context, and those truths are foundational truths and unchangeable. So one thing to back this up is the idea that Jesus himself accepted um, as an account of the material origins of the world around us the uh the old testament scriptures so he quotes about abel he quotes about the flood he quotes about adam and eve who were made at the beginning and the idea is that surely we too should believe the literal chapters of genesis as an explanation of the origins just like jesus did yeah and then another view is that we should stand on the bible and look outwards rather than stand on the shoulders of academics the ones who are studying the cultural context of the bible and critiquing it looking inwards and i think that's that's an interesting thing that was said in a facebook thread on my question because we don't just stand on the bible and look out i mean we've we've developed a culture and a society of christadelphians to help us look inwardly at the, at the bible and and interpret it in some way that fits our doctrines and and
1: Yeah, so I guess the question is, is there ever any kind of neutral way to come at the Bible? Um, And, yeah, I would personally say no. I think the idea of we stand on the Bible and look out is really beautiful and it's really simple. Unfortunately, that ignores the fact that as much as we try not to, of course, we're going to bring our own bias to the Bible. Hmm. And within our own Christadelphian um, view of the Bible, within that is... Um, you know, a hundred years—is that right? No
0: more than that. 1840.
1: Know. Okay, I don't really know enough about Gustavian history. I'm definitely not an authority on this. But you know, it, it was spawned from kind of American Protestantism, which is a very specific branch of the Christian world, isn't it? And yeah. also, you know, the idea that um, pretty much all theology and bible study has been done until the last you know 50 or so years by men by um, often kind of educated western men which in itself is going to bring a certain amount of bias to something mm. as well so we can't ever just say yep yeah, we're reading the bible this is exactly what it says i'm not being influenced by anything else because you know the very act of reading it you're going to bring some kind of bias to it
0: um so we're left in kind of a situation where there's two camps, and to be in the middle of those two camps maybe doesn't really make sense because you, you can't pick and choose. You either have to say, OK, we're going to accept cultural context and we're going to look as much as we can with the information we've got about the cultural context of the time. And to do that, we need to really...
1: You need to go and do a PhD, basically. Yeah,
0: you need, need to really balance yeah. lots of scholarly work and you need to know who is credible, you need to know what the scholarly consensus is. You
1: need to be literate and understand about critical analysis and mm-hmm. have access to all that information.
0: Uh, you, you still need some critical analysis, even if you don't take on cultural context. But So the other option is to say, actually, the Bible is void of any cultural context. It's, it's been handed down to us and directly to us with universal truths, and therefore we should ignore cultural context. But then you have the problem of those passages that we talked about, like the heart. You have to kind of do some jiggery-pokery around demons and exorcisms and those sorts of things, and it's kind of hard to not take a literal reading of that without applying cultural context.
1: Or you could say, if you use the Bible to interpret the Bible, if you can see from the Bible that... um, that demons and devils don't exist, then you may just read it and say, you don't know what that's referring to, but to be theologically consistent with the rest of the Bible, it can't mean literal demon possession, and that's something that we yeah. just won't
0: know. Yeah. But having things that we can't know in the Bible kind of goes against the argument that the Bible can...
1: Is a universal truth.
0: Yeah, yeah. For so, uh, for example, um, Janna's and Jambra's... Like, there's nothing to really interpret that. And so if there's a answer sheet for all of the kind of these questions in the Bible and when Jesus comes back, he's got all his answers and we hand him our answer sheet, he's like, well, what about Janna's and Jambra's? Did he not get that bit? We're like, no, couldn't work it out. He's like, ah, well... If you looked here then you'd have, you'd have figured it out
1: again that's sort of um this is probably a bit of a tangent but it's kind of what you think the bible and what god is asking us to do isn't it mm. so it can often feel like there's an emphasis on god's given us yeah he's given us a test he's given us some homework and we've got to go through and puzzle it out and we've got to make these links and find the perfect doctrine and, um, you know, maybe work out some prophecy and that kind of mm, thing. And mm. then we go back and we literally show our answer sheets to St. Peter <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, um, but I guess none of us can fathom the idea of judgment and what we're judged on. Hmm. But um, we can definitely focus a bit too much on that
0: And sometimes I worry that for all of the... Because you can study... To you're blue in the face, what all the scholars think. You can search through the Bible for what you think about these particularly, like, nuanced passages. And then all you've done is just a load of reading and you've not really maybe used your time that effectively.
1: Also, um, how accessible is that kind of thing to... Just someone on the street. I'm just thinking of, for example, the main demographic of people who are really coming to Philadelphia at the moment are um kind of Iranian and Kurdish people. Could you really ever go into that much detail, particularly with a language barrier, mm. over those kind of nuances? Uh yes, yeah, so how, how important?
0: Yeah, so I guess the argument then is like, well, actually, there's things that are um, foundational to salvation. And, you know, so we have some boxes there that were like okay baptism um you gotta have a true understanding of christ's sacrifice and those sorts of things that's maybe that question of is it important though kind of focuses on that like Mm. yeah. yeah
1: um however i would say that it is important because there are some things Uh, that are quite uh, contentious or have lots of emotion behind them where if you look at cultural context you can find alternative things
0: yeah so this I guess is this the crux of it isn't it it's like the idea of um, sisters roles and head coverings and maybe even the creation story those those touch points for these challenging topics that if we, we lived in a male-dominated society up until the last kind of fifty years or so, advances in technology and things have uh, have enabled women to have a more equal role in society, and that pushes forward the ideas about equality in those regards. And it's
1: actually two thousand years of women not being in the picture to now stand up and go, "Oh, hang on, why does it say this? Yeah, because it affects me directly. Yeah, I'm gonna." Maybe look into it a little, little bit more
0: and... Yeah, and, maybe not yeah, and women are able to look into it more and are able to have a bit more of a voice and say, actually, we're not happy about this, and validly be listened mm-hmm. to. So, like, maybe even, yeah, 50 years ago, if a woman had an issue with that, it wouldn't have been even considered. It'd be like, well, you let the men... Figure that out, yeah,
1: yeah, like and your husband, explain to you at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: and so there are biblical kind of verses people would turn to to make that happen, mm-hmm. and so.
1: Whereas in cultural context, are you saying actually is that just something that Paul asked a particularly troublesome group of people? Yeah, you've never and, been to church before, and yeah.
0: because that's just the way we've interpreted over the last you know couple of thousand years, it's it's become our tradition and our interpretation. So, for example, with Jesus and his, his parable about the rich man, Lazarus, he is saying that, that on the face value, that if you're good, you go to the bosom of Abraham, and if you're bad, you go to Hades.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But actually what he's saying, when you apply cultural context, is the exact opposite of that. And so you know, lots of people would say, well, it's pretty clear that Jesus is saying that you go to heaven or hell when you die. And we'd say, well, no, you apply cultural context and can see a a different story. And so we can't ourselves shut down the conversation about women's roles by saying Paul is being explicitly clear about this. He may well be being explicitly clear about it, but we need people's questions answered about it. Mm -hmm. And those questions are sometimes going to involve cultural context and we need to listen to those ideas about cultural context in order to have an idea and weigh them up effectively mm-hmm. it's going to take a long time and it's going and to, to have be a conversation is it That's yeah and and it might you know when you, when you're couched in your idea and you have always been it's hard to then like we said in the previous episodes to then be approached with a new understanding of a passage that you've always interpreted one way can then make you feel undermined and um make the you feel like the community is being undermined mm-hmm. but i guess the point of this podcast is there are some cultural context ideas around these challenging topics that need to be picked up and looked at and analyzed properly and when we and we can't just ignore them because we use cultural context in other places if you want to ignore the cultural context around the passages that Paul's talking about, then you have to ignore the other places you apply cultural context as well. You can't pick and choose. Mm-hmm. You have to be all or nothing, I guess. And if you're going to be nothing with cultural context, then there's going to be some other things that you get some real tricky issues with, where cultural context provides you with actually just the answer that you need to mm-hmm. box it away and be happy with it. Mm.
1: Like, who were the people who did that?
0: Um, the Q- in Qumran... Yeah, that's the one. Oh, I forget what they're called. The
1: Qumranians? (laughs) (laughs) Them guys.
0: Anyway, don't know. Right, I think that'll be it. That's just done. So can you summarise what the main point is that I just made?
1: So uh, what we just made was thinking about our application of cultural context. We can't apply it in one case and not apply it in another and I think it goes back to the previous idea that we talked about of fear, so we can't just use it to back up the things that are safe and consistent and reject it when it tries to change something
0: um, or if it has the potential to change yeah, something potential yeah. to
1: change something, and also to the idea of is it important uh in my brain it's just kind of really hit home is it kind of is important, particularly in the idea of sisters roles and I you know I'm not an expert on any of this stuff and I can't say in any way I've made up my mind about anything but the idea that is Paul really telling us to cut the people who are ready to be teachers and take an active role in our church literally in half in fact probably even less than half because I think this age, show age that,
0: group and stuff as well
1: well no but stats show that more women go to church than men do okay um that does seem to be really important that we make sure that's definitely what's going on and that is relevant to us now. Um, So, yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, so let's not throw out cultural context with those kind of challenging topics. We need to pick them up and have a real good hard look at them.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, But there's flaws in each end of the scale. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely.
0: And also there might be some things that we've not heard before because I think there's recent studies by people like Cynthia Long Westfall... And, and, and others that I will maybe attach to a document associated with enough politics. names for
1: a group of people. To yeah,
0: right. Um, that are recent kind of under, uh, developments through recent archaeological and textual um, studies. So, you know, we might have thought we've heard of them all, but there's, there's at least one I can think of that I think most people haven't heard <laughs> of, which is very interesting, and maybe we'll talk about that next episode. I think, I think so moving on from this podcast would be to maybe pick up an example of one of those issues of cultural context and see if it um, is valid and if we should take it seriously or not okay thanks everybody we'll see you again next time
1: bye